On the morning of April 19, 1995, a former U.S. Army soldier parked a rented Ryder truck in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building located in downtown Oklahoma City. Inside the truck was everything he needed to carry out his plan of terrorism and mass murder. He had a large bomb, which he created using agricultural fertilizer and some chemicals, including diesel fuel. After parking the truck, he got out and walked toward his getaway car, a yellow Mercury Marquis. He ignited a timed fuse and a second fuse as backup. Inside the building, in one of the office conference rooms, the Oklahoma Water Resources Board had just begun a 9 a.m. meeting. Days before the Oklahoma Water Resources Board meet, they actually uh, they sit in this room and discuss the application and vote whether to approve or deny the application. So they're the decision makers. And you'll receive a, a copy of my proposed recommendation and can attend that board meeting and uh, present your information directly to them or arguments directly to the nine-member board uh, they generally meet the second Tuesday of every month. Uh, so you'll be advised of that. Uh, with regard to this proceeding, basically there are four elements that I have to uh, uh, receive information regarding. <laughs> The blast effect was equivalent to over 5,000 pounds of TNT and could be heard and felt 55 miles away. The blast either destroyed or damaged 324 buildings within a four-block radius. 86 cars were either burned or destroyed, and a large section of the federal building had been reduced to rubble. News crews were shocked when they first viewed the damage from their helicopter. It looks like part of the building has been blown away. We'll have to bank around the other side so I can get a better view of it. The explosion went off around 9 a.m. and we could feel the explosion in the newsroom at least five miles from downtown. As the chopper goes around the side of the federal building, wow. look at that shot. Holy it is cow. absolutely incredible. The side of the federal building has been blown off, Jesse. About a, about a third, about a third of the building has been blown away. Uh, this is just devastating. Inside the building, 163 people were killed. Additional casualties were one person in the nearby Athenian building, one woman in a parking lot across the street, two people in the Oklahoma Water Resources Building, and a rescue worker who was struck on the head by falling debris. In total, 168 people died that day. 19 of those were children. Almost 700 other people were injured. 
My guest today, Amy, was in the Federal Building that morning. She worked on the third floor at the Federal Employees Credit Union. You're about to hear her tell the story of what happened to her that day. But just as amazing is what has happened to her since that day. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? We all enjoy a little mystery. Every other week, one strange thing presents forgotten stories from America's newspaper archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. Join us on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about a man who was literally stricken with genius. A 21st century child who remembered piloting a World War II bomber. A mysterious, unidentifiable blob in Texas. And then there was the lizard man stalking through small town South Carolina. From cryptids and disappearances to modern-day miracles, One Strange Thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money, no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. What was your job on that day and and where was your office? I worked downtown in the federal building on the third floor, and my actual desk was just a few feet from the front glass windows of the federal building. So basically kind of front and center on the third floor. And at that time, I worked, I had a desk job, and I worked 
um, in the credit card department. I had started out as a teller and had worked for several years as a teller and finally got my opportunity for a desk job and was really excited about that. This may seem like an unrelated question, but it kind of fits in with the rest of the story. Did you like your job? You know, I was a bit on the lazy side and I liked the people that I worked with. The woman that I worked for, Vicki, I really admired her and liked her. And so I was starting to reach a place where I did actually like what I did because I really liked the, I, I think it was the um, maybe approval that I would get from Vicki. So it really was about my supervisor, not my actual work, which of course we all, all now know that you know, when people quit their jobs, they're usually quitting a supervisor. So the supervisor has so much to do with your quality of work life. So yeah, so I think I was finally at a place where I was starting to like work, but I always liked the people that I worked with. Yeah, that makes a big difference when you go in. You know, you mentioned the name of the credit union was Federal Employees Credit Union. And this building was just had lots of government offices and government workers in this building. Did it ever occur to you ahead of time that the building might be a terrorist target? Absolutely not. I mean, I went to work for the credit union in 1988, and we never heard stories of anything happening to federal buildings or anything like that. In fact, I remember thinking that I was at the safest place because usually the issue of working for a financial institution is you're concerned about robbery. And that's always in the back of your mind. Well, I never worried about robbery. We had Secret Service, ATF. I mean, we had all the law enforcement agents all around us. They watched out for us. We never worried about somebody robbing us. So that never entered my mind. Yeah, a bank robber is going to look for an easier target. Oh, yeah. Like that, yeah, so sure. it never dawned on me we would be a, a, a terrorist target ever. On that day, you were in your office. Some coworkers came in. Just uh, tell us what happened then. The morning of the bombing, it was, you know, really just a typical spring morning in Oklahoma City. And I had spent the first hour of my workday running around chatting with all my friends. So basically goofing off, just talking with everybody. I was getting ready to close on my first house. So I was really excited about it. So I was talking to everybody about the house. And when it got close to nine o'clock, I sort of had this feeling of, oh my gosh, I have literally goofed off like almost my first hour of my day. I better get to work. And so I headed to my office to sit down at my desk and start to work. And one of my coworkers who was seven months pregnant came in and sat down right beside me. I was finishing up, you know, signing on the computer. I sort of had this feeling of, what does she want? Because, you know, here I'd goofed off the first part of my day. I really need to get to work. You know, I didn't have time for whatever it was she needed. And so I kind of took my sweet time addressing her, signing on the computer, doing some other stuff. Then I finally turned to, you know, hey, what do you need? And when I turned to say, hey, what do you need? I don't know if the words ever made it out of my mouth or not, because that's, that's when the bomb went off. The only way that I know how to describe it is if you've ever been to like a rock hard rock or heavy metal concert, and you happen to be right in front of the speaker. And it's like almost that 
feedback static, like it's so loud, you can't actually comprehend what you're hearing, like a roar. That was just the, that was my attempt at trying to describe it because I just can't describe it. I know what you're talking about. It's more like you feel it rather than hear it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And then on top of that, I was hearing screaming. I could hear screaming all around. And I remember hearing a woman screaming just right in my ear and, and then realizing that was my voice. I didn't even recognize the sound of my own voice. I was just so, so terrified. And I felt this you know, the whole time this is happening, I felt like this rushing sensation, like I was falling. And I'm thinking I'm falling to the floor. I didn't know, but I was actually falling three floors. I found out later that I was still in my chair and had fallen three floors, was upside down in my chair, in the rubble, with about 10 feet of rubble packed on top of me. That part just seems so incredible. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, if some, somebody's listening to this right now, and if picture if you if you laid on the floor wherever you're at right now and look up the ceiling is probably eight feet maybe, and so you had another two feet on top of that, mm-hmm. and all of this is concrete, mm-hmm. uh, all the building yeah. construction and everything, yep. and yet you're still alive at the bottom of that. The way they described it, the third and the fourth floors, the concrete slabs of the third and fourth floors had had cracked. And I guess formed some type of um, shield of some sort to where that's why I wasn't crushed to death because there was some amount of concrete sort of protecting where I, where I was to some degree. So, I mean, there was little bits of rubble encased all around me, but the heavy parts were a little protected because of, of the slabs of concrete above me that had fallen. And so I, in that split second, you know, I, I, I hear this noise. I feel this rushing sensation. I can hear people screaming. And my first thought was that somebody had come in and shot me in the back of the head. Because again, that that thought of robbery is sort of always back there, even though I didn't really worry about it being in the federal building. My first thought was, oh my gosh, like we've, somebody's come in, they, you know, and I've been shot. That was how powerful it was. That was the only thing I could try to even connect the dots as to what had happened. And then just very quickly, everything was quiet. I tried to move. I couldn't move. And I tried to open my eyes to see, but it didn't matter whether I opened my eyes or closed my eyes. It was just pitch black. I remember my mouth, I, I thought that maybe my teeth had broken off in my mouth because my mouth was full of like what felt like teeth and it was concrete bits, you know. And I, I remember just, you know, screaming, help me, help me. And just, screaming and nothing. And I wondered about Robin, my friend who was sitting next to me, and I called out to her several times and there was nothing. Occasionally I would hear, you know, someone moaning um, off in the distance, but nobody ever replied. It, It was hot. And I remember there was this smell that if I ever smelled it again, I would, I would know that's what it was, but it was just this awful burning smell that, you know, I'm assuming this fertilizer burning. I I don't know. I remember wondering, actually, when it first happened, thinking, am I dead? Like, did I die? Because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't move. I couldn't see. Like, it was so 
just unbelievable. I, I couldn't figure out what had happened. And then I could hear a siren going off in the distance. And I decided, okay, I, there's a siren, like I'm alive, I, I'm hearing this. But then I thought, because nobody would answer, I'm thinking, I don't know what just happened, but what if everybody is dead and I'm the only person left alive and I'm just going to, like, I'm just going to, I'm just here until I die. You know, I just, I really could not understand what had happened. But that whole thing was about 45 minutes. After about 45 minutes, I heard men's voices and I heard them saying, let's split up. Let's look for the daycare babies. And so I heard this and I thought, oh, okay. I I was a little confused because I worked on the third floor. The daycare was on the second floor. I did not understand that I was at the bottom of what was once this nine-story building. But I started screaming and I heard this man say, I hear you. I hear you, child. How old are you? And I remember wanting to say, two, I'm two, because <laughs> I was thinking if I tell him I'm 28, he's not going to come get me. And I paused. I said, I'm sorry, I'm 28, <laughs> you know, and he said, that's okay. And he started yelling, we have a live one. We have a live one. We need backup. We need help. And he said, we can't see you. We have to follow the sound of your voice. So keep talking to us. And I said, what happened? And he said that it had been a bomb. Well, in 1995, for listeners who weren't around then, we this was not a thing that happened. You know, terrorist attacks, car. I didn't even know what a car bomb was in a. You know, in the United States, we just didn't deal with that kind of thing. So I thought when he said it was a bomb, I'm picturing like we're at war and some airplane has dropped a bomb on our city. Like it took me a while to understand that this bomb had only happened to my building. They started working their way closer to me, and and my right hand was sticking out of the side of that rubble pile. So they were able to come across my hand. When they got my hand, I, I'm not understanding that I'm buried under all this rubble. I'm still thinking I've just fallen down, and I, I don't really know. But I feel them grab my hand. I'm thinking this is going to be, you know, one, two, three. They're going to pull me out. So I'm thinking this is it, over, like I'm saved. And about the time they found my hand, I heard all of this screaming in the background and these men yelling, there's another bomb. There's another bomb. We need to go. Let's go. Let's go. There's another bomb. We got to go. I I realized at that point, you know, they they couldn't pull me out. And they started saying to me, Amy, we're going to be right back. We just need some more hydraulic equipment. We're going to be right back. But I could hear what was going on. And so I just started saying my name over and over again tell my family I love them because I knew that this was it. I now understood what had happened and now there's another one. So I'm not getting out. I am getting ready to die. So you thought they were, they were saying just to go get more equipment, but that was just to placate you. Yeah. And so you wouldn't worry as much, but you knew they were, any, any minute, another bomb could go off and then you'd really. Yeah. I mean, they, they were yelling, there is another bomb. There is another bomb. I remember hearing one of them say, there's another bomb. It's going to be worse than the first. We've got to go. We've got to go. And they did need equipment, but I could, you know, I I could hear what was happening. And if you ever have watched footage um, that they replay sometimes the anniversary, you will see the footage of people running from the scene. That footage is during that second bomb scare. It's not during the first one. When the first bomb went off, there was nobody in the streets. You know, they were all in the building. When the second bomb 
supposedly was going to happen. That's when you saw people running everywhere, you know, blood streaming down their faces. They're just panicked and running. That was when they thought there was another bomb. But in reality, there was no second bomb. There was no second bomb. But there was about 45 minutes that my reality was, there is another bomb. I'm, I'm getting ready to die. And so once they left, um, that's when I experienced what a lot of people refer to as life flashing before your eyes. You know, just those moments where you realize this is, this is it. Like, this is really, really it. And you're thinking about your life and all of a sudden realizing what really is important and, you know, that you lived a life that you didn't really live, you know, and just the, the deep regret, the crushing regret that I felt was just, it was terrible. It's something I would not want anyone to ever go through, which is kind of why I, I speak so much about my experience because I want people to really think about their lives and not take it for granted and to live with intention because you don't realize until it's over. And yeah, you know, there's a there's a book I read called uh, Regrets of the Dying. I think it was the name of it. It's by a woman named Bronnie Ware. And she was a hospice nurse and she interviewed all these patients she had that were dying and asked them like what their regrets were the number one regret was not living a life true to themselves, you know, and, but we get so caught up in our day-to-day stuff, all the things, taking care of kids, groceries, errands, work. We don't stop to really think about how are we actually living our lives? Like, are we really living a life true to ourselves? We don't until we're about to die. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, I didn't live my life the way I should have. Right. What was I thinking? Mm-hmm. And that's what I experienced during that that forty five minutes was just all of that realization that I'm I'm getting ready to die and I never even lived, you know, I never even lived, and so I just kept just basically begging God, you know, for a second chance, a do over. I'll live different. I'll I'll do anything. I just want I just want a second chance. Now, how does that fit in? There was a point when you were still trapped where you assumed you were going to die and you decided I'll just kill myself. Yeah, I did. I really did. So I thought it, my first thought was it was really hard to get air. I sort of had to lift my head up in this crevice to really breathe in some air. And I remember thinking I'm going to quit breathing. Like I'm just going to quit breathing. I'm going to quit trying to breathe and die. And yes, that sounds ridiculous and it is, but I, it was just an attempt to try to control my own destiny, I guess. And um, that didn't work because your body will fight to live and breathe. <laughs> and so then I thought, I, I thought, okay, I'm going to try to fall asleep. I'm going to make myself fall asleep. I'm just going to try to fall asleep because somehow, you know, if you die in your sleep, that's not going to hurt. You know, I don't know. And so I tried to fall asleep and that did that. You can't make yourself fall asleep either. So, yeah, I had all these thoughts racing through my head, you know, trying to figure out what to do. And people hearing this might think, oh, that's so silly. Why would she think those things? It's so stupid, right? Nobody's been through what you've been through. No, right. I mean, in those moments, you're just freaked out, panicked, like trying to do anything. And I can't move. You know, you can't, I can't do anything. And so all I have is my mind to think and, you know, that's it. I would, I'm just picturing the claustrophobia of that. But of course, that was, that would be the least of your concerns though, right? I mean, I'm terribly claustrophobic. <laughs> I really am. So, uh, always have been. And so, yeah, that just wasn't even, 
didn't even enter my mind. That's amazing. It, it was just, it was such, it was such terror and such panic. It's like you couldn't even dissect and it all happened so fast. You couldn't even really process or dissect every moment because it was just all so much so fast and, and just that desperate, like, I want to live, like whatever it is, you know, it, it's amazing the strength you have when you must have it. Suddenly it's there. So I laid there and and did this bargaining, you know, begging, second chance, please God, you know, just get me out of here. And and I remember, uh, I remember another thing I did was I thought, okay. So I grew up in a faith based home, a Christian faith based home, and we. I went to children's church as a kid. You'd always have to memorize scripture, you know, and they gave you candy, which you know that probably wasn't the right thing to do. So here I am. I'm, I'm, I have to say too, I was 355 pounds. So I. That's a that's a critical part of the story. Yeah, yeah. So I was 355 pounds. I'm 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 trapped in the rubble. The re- some of the regret that I had was that I had let relationships back home drift away because this was before cell phones, social media, email. I didn't want to go back home to have people see me because I had gained so much weight. I had gained 200 pounds. I didn't want anybody to know. And so therefore I let relationships slide. And so those were some of the regrets I had while I was trapped is not those relationships. I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to remember one of these scriptures, right? I'm going to quote a scripture like, I don't know, I guess I'm thinking, you know, meditation, like something. And so our, the scripture that popped into my head is this one um, that a lot of people I'm sure have heard, whether they're a Christian faith or not, but it's though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And that was the part that I remembered. That was the only part I remembered. So I was laying there thinking, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, well, crap, like I'm in the freaking shadow of death. I don't even know what comes next in this scripture or in like what's happening next, like how appropriate <laughs> and just the irony of it, you know? And so I sort of went through this whole, you know, as I'm going through this flunked out of college, I, I, I just, not that I think college is the right answer for anything, but just all the opportunities that I had in my life that I squandered and wasted. And then of all the really weird things to do, as if all these other things were not weird, but this song popped into my head that we used to sing when I was growing up in church. And I began to sing. As I sang, I felt this incredible peace come over me. And I knew I was going to be okay. I did not know that meant I was going to make it out alive. I really thought I was going to die, but I was at peace with what was getting ready to happen. But of course, there was not a second bomb and they came back and started working to get me out. But it wasn't as easy as one, two, three, pull me out. It took them, it was over six hours that it took these men to finally be able to pull me out. And they were in danger themselves. They were in danger. Um, The wind had begun to pick up. The building, what was left of the building was extremely unstable. There was a very large industrial size refrigerator that was dangling just by conduit over some of the broken concrete that was swinging above the pit where I was located. And so the danger for these men was that at any point, something could fall and crush them. So because of that, there was an emergency physician on standby to amputate my leg if needed, because my leg was what was preventing them. It was so pinned. It was what was preventing them from pulling my whole self out of this hole. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. 
That little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com/what. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? then it's time to become mentally stronger. 
Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. And I heard them talking, and about every so often I would hear them talking about this, you know, her leg. And I, I figured out what was going on. And so I said to them, if you need to chop something off to get me out, chop it off. Like that's, I mean, I know that sounds really crude, but that's where I was. I mean, that was the situation. And there was a girl I later have met, and she's just the most wonderful woman, Dana Bradley, who was the last that was pulled out. And they did have to amputate her on site to get her out. And so my rescuers just kept saying, give us 20 more minutes, give us 20 more minutes. And they did this like for a long time. And because of that, I still have my legs and they risked their lives to get me out in one piece. It would have been easier for them to just, yeah, go ahead and amputate so they could get me out quickly, get them safe, you know, get everybody out safely. Did you feel pain in that leg at that time? I felt no pain until they pulled me out and then everything came alive. You know, they said, okay, we're going to count to three and pull. This is probably going to hurt. And of course, I've been saying, chop it off. I'm all brave, you know, so I'm like, I don't care. Pull me, you know, get me out. And they pulled me out and wow, like everything did come alive. But as I looked around, it was like a movie scene is the only way I can describe it. Like it wasn't real. My brain was telling me this is, you're not like, this isn't real. What you're seeing is not real. That's how, that's how crazy it was. Just the remains of the building. And I, I remember seeing the staircase that the staircase was still intact that would have gone up to the second floor. And there was a a piece of, of Native American art hanging there. It was there like as if nothing ever happened. Like it was like all perfect. And then all around everything looked like, look, like a bomb had destroyed it. I mean, it was just, and they put me on the back of this gurney. They took me out of the back of what was once the federal building. The sky was dark and gray. It had been a beautiful spring morning, but now it looked like the middle of winter. It was cold, gray, and it was starting to rain. But looking up at that sky and taking that first breath of fresh air, I remember promising I will never live my life the same. I will never live my life the same. They took me to the ambulance and <laughs> kind of funny. So they asked me in the, in the ambulance, a nurse asked me, you know, when's the last time you had a tetanus shot? And that was when I lost my shit right then. That's when I lost it. Like here I'm all, I'm all in the building, like chop it off if you need to chop it off. I get in there and they start talking to me about a shot and I freak out. I hate needles. I freaked out. I'm bawling, crying. Like I don't want a shot. And that nurse, I'll never forget, was a male nurse. He's looking at me with his eyes like so big. And he's like, you mean to tell me you have been trapped in that building and you're scared of a shot? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and he said, he said, well, I'm not giving it to you. I'm getting my supervisor. <laughs> I did get the shot. But anyway, so yeah, then they took me to the hospital and ended up in ICU. And that's when I started piecing together. They had the, the nurses had the news on in ICU and were watching it. And so that's when I first started piecing together bits and pieces of, you know, how bad it was, what, what had really happened. You know, media descended upon Oklahoma City, of course, you know, just immediately. And the hospital PR guy had come into my room and said, hey, Bryant Gumbel's out in the hallway. He wants to interview you. And back in the day, so set the stage, the Today Show had two anchors, Bryant Gumbel and Katie Couric. 
And there was always sort of in the tabloid, this rumor that the two of them didn't get along or something. I don't know. I don't know. I think it was the drugs they gave me. I have no idea, but I cannot believe I did this. But this is what I said. I was like, well, I don't like Brian Gumble. I like Katie Couric. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy comes back in. He's like, okay, Katie Couric does want to interview via satellite because they didn't send Katie there. They sent Brian there. So I go via satellite. I do this interview with Katie Couric. She asks about the leg. She asks about the wound. Well, they had told me that all I had was a cut on my leg. So I'm picturing like a Band-Aid situation. I've got a cut on my leg. So I said, I I just have a cut on my leg. And, you know, I hadn't seen anything because I was so beat up and sore. I literally couldn't move. I was like a mummy. You know, I couldn't move. And I was bandaged all up. So I couldn't see anything. Um, I said, yeah, I just have a cut on my leg. And so we, in that interview, they take me immediately to like this whirlpool thing to put me down in this huge whirlpool and they start unbandaging my leg. While you were on TV? No, no, no. Okay. As soon as we finished the interview, as soon as we finished the interview. So here I'm like telling them, I'm telling people on national TV, I have a little cut on my leg. I'm all good. And then they take me to this whirlpool. They drop me down in there. They start unbandaging it. And that little cut, no, my leg was blown open. Like I saw the bone in my leg and I, I thought I was going to pass out. Like I, it was gray. I remember I, I so vividly, I'm like, I saw my flesh, my bone, my every, I mean, I just, it freaked me out. I thought, how am I, like, you can't stand up. My stuff's going to fall out of my leg. You know, I, I'm just, I didn't, I don't know. I was just like, whoa, I didn't know a person could live with a hole that big in their leg, you know? Yeah. Nobody wants to see their own bones. That's no, sure. no. But I have thought since then, you know, we're so nowadays, you know, we're all with our cell phones and our cameras and, you know, the gross, gross part of me is like, man, I wish I had a picture of that. <laughs> now, you know, but oh, oh, it was terrible. When did you find out about the outcome of as far as your coworkers? Well, right away in the hospital, I was just convinced that, hey, if I made it out alive, there are other people, like I was wanting to encourage everybody, don't give up hope, like they're in there, they just got to get to them. And I really held on to this thought that they're in there and they're they're going to get them out. But then you know, as the days ticked on and there were no other survivors coming out, there was me and there was Dana Bradley and nobody else. It became evident that they weren't going to come out. The phone would ring constantly in my hospital room with my coworkers, family members calling, asking, do I remember what they wore that day? You know, do you remember what Christy had on? And it was terrible because I talked to Christy. You know, I spent that first hour of my day running around talking to everybody. How could I not remember what they were wearing? I only remembered what my best friend Sonia had on that day. And that was it. I didn't remember what anybody else had. And the family wanted to know that because of the search. They were trying to identify bodies. And so they were having to identify bodies based on clothing and things like that. It was awful. You know, this is before cell phones and things like that. So news traveled slower, right? So you had to wait for the newspaper to come out or they would run it on the, some of the news was running 24 seven, but the newspaper would print every day, like who, who, what, whose bodies they'd found. So who was deceased, who was in hospitals, who, you know, so we could keep track of like who had made it and who hadn't through the newspaper. So that's how you, you read your friends' names in the newspaper. Yeah, I remember. Um, so Billy Graham and Bill Clinton 
President Bill Clinton and Billy Graham came to town to do like a prayer service. Um, I don't remember what day it was. It, I was in the hospital for eight days. So somewhere during that eight days, they had this big like prayer service, like multi-faith like thing. And it was on television. You know, they were filming it live. And I remember sitting in the bed like, oh, there's Bobby. There's Bobby. Oh my gosh. There's like, that was one of the moments where I could see people that I knew walking in. So I knew they were alive because I saw them. You know, 168 people being killed. You can't keep track of that many names. And I found out that 18 of my 33 coworkers were killed. But out of the 168, something like 100 of those people in the building, I knew because they had accounts at my credit union and they came in to get money every day. You know, because you didn't have ATMs even back then. So they came to us to get their $5 for lunch or whatever. And so even now, sometimes I'll, somebody will say a name and they'll be like, you know, oh, they, they were killed in the bombing. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Because it's just hard to remember that many people who, who died. We lost 18 of 33 coworkers. I mean, think about that. Like if you worked in an office with 33 people, over half are killed. It, it was, it was terrible. One of your customers came to visit you in the hospital. Can you talk about that? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So the day before the bombing, I think it was, I had had a call from a man who was going through a divorce and wanted to take his wife off the account. And he was like, I want to take her off the account. Like, I'm getting a divorce. Like, remove her. Well, it doesn't actually work that way. So, you know, you can't just call up and like remove your spouse. Like the spouse has to actually agree that they want to be off the account. So I tried to explain that. Like, okay, I need to, you know, both of you will need to sign a card to remove her from the account. And he did not like that and was talking down to me the whole time. You know, honey, get your boss on the line. He'll understand. Let me talk to him. Well, my boss was a woman and our CEO was a woman. In fact, it was mostly women where I worked. So I remember just finally probably being equally ugly back to him saying, you know, well, she's at lunch. I'll have her call you back. And I remember he called me an ugly word. So anyway, so that's how that went. And so one day I was in the hospital laying there and it was one of those moments where nobody was around, which was unusual because the room had been flooded with people and family and everything. And this big old man walks in like, I mean, he looks like he needs to be a bouncer in a bar somewhere. He is tattooed up and down like he looks like he's getting ready to beat somebody up. And I was kind of a little nervous. I'm like, OK, who's this guy walking in? And he walks in. He's carrying a rose and he gets closer to my bed. And I look at his face and I can see that he's like, he is emotional and he has got tears running down his face. He's choked up. He can't talk. And he says his name and he says his name and he says, do you remember me? It was the guy. It was the jerk. And I'm just, I just, I just, I nod. And he just says, I'm so sorry. And he just lays that rose down. and He can't talk. And he just starts crying and leaves and I'm crying and I'm just, It was just one of those things where all of a sudden, I guess, you realize maybe in his shoes and my shoes too, because I was ugly right back to him. You know, we don't have to be ugly to each other. We're humans. And I don't know, I guess that probably drove home to him. You know, the person on the other line was not a robot, but a person. And, you know, so 
But it did. It changed a lot of Oklahoma. I mean, we just really came together and you saw the good come out in so many people. We just put our differences aside and came together to help each other get through this time. The person who bombed the building, he was executed by lethal injection six years after the Mm -hmm. bombing. Did you ever try to contact him or communicate with him at all? No, not at all. And uh, I had opportunity. I could have gone and seen the execution and I did not. Instead, Katie Couric actually came back to town to do coverage during that time frame. And instead, I opted to go do an interview with Katie Couric. You're a real Katie Couric fan, aren't you? I was Katie Couric fan. So I, w- I went to hang out with her. I was like, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to have any part of it. So um, now I will say this. So there is, there were two people that were involved. The accomplice is actually still alive and serving time in prison right now. I've never made any, any move to contact him at all, but and I don't usually talk about this, but because uh, I don't know, it just never comes up. But I did go through a time where I had been really thinking a lot about forgiveness and what forgiveness means. And I usually will pray in the morning. And I did go through a season, I don't know, might have been a week, might have been two weeks, I mean, not very long, where I actually prayed for that person. I don't know. It was just kind of a, I thought, well, you know, maybe this is part of a healing or a place of where you can actually pray for this person's soul, you know, or pray that they, that they um, come to some place of reckoning with themselves, you know, or something. I don't know, but I never made any, you know, I didn't want to contact him or anything like that. And I'm not saying I'm all like perfect about it because later a news story came out that he was complaining about the food he was being served in prison. He didn't like the food. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? I'll give him some food. Like, let's put poison in it. So, I mean, it's not like I'm all <laughs> this perfect, like, Christian who forgave. You oh, know, so you're I human right. too. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I went straight back to, oh, I'll give you some food <laughs> with some rat poison in it, right, you know? Right. <laughs> so, anyway, but yeah. So, at, at this point, y- your credit union, your employer, the, the that was the only location you had. That was completely destroyed. That was it. And half your staff is gone too. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do? Well, that's that's what do you do? Like in an instant, our entire business model was destroyed. We served the people. We existed to serve the people in that building, and that was our only location. That's gone. Business model gone. More than half our employees gone. Like, what do you do? Well, the credit union industry as a whole is very uh, collaborative. It's our our mission, all credit unions' mission is people helping people. And what happened was credit unions came together from all over to help us. And there was a large credit union in Oklahoma City that had, they were so large, they actually had sort of a mock teller line where they trained new tellers on this like fake teller line. They let us open up 48 hours later using that mock teller line. We opened up inside of a competitor's office. So we were able to open 48 hours later and there was just a handful of us left, but we were clear that we wanted to survive. It was very important to us. We did not want to merge. We wanted to make it. And so we began just getting very intentional about what needs to happen next. You know, what do we need to do? Just the next step, the next step, the next step and um, to survive. And we did. And we're six times larger today than we were then. It's just, I look back now and I think, we shouldn't have made it. We shouldn't have survived. Like, I don't know how that happened, 
um, it's that's just an amazing story right there to me that that our our credit union made it. Well, it's kind of um, it says something about the nature of credit unions too, because I mean, can you imagine Bank of America saying to Wells Fargo, "Hey, come and use one of our buildings"? Yeah. <laughs> It's funny. I say that. I have said that so many times and not, not to slam any other uh, uh, bank or anything, but I, you typically don't hear that, right? You don't hear that, but you, you will see that with credit unions where they will come together to help each other. So your credit union, it's a different name now, but it's much larger. You yourself are much smaller. <laughs> yeah. How did you do that? Well, okay. So I'd like to tell you that, you know, when I left the hospital, like cue the Rocky music, like I went running down the steps, like... Da-na-na, da-na-na. You know, I'm going to change my life. You know, it didn't exactly work that way. First had to work through a lot of grief, a lot, a lot of grief, uh, a lot of emotional trauma and rebuilding the credit union. Totally focused on that. Through the process of rebuilding this credit union, we got good at like setting goals and accomplishing those goals, setting steps to get there. And I realized, you know, I, why is it that I can do amazing things at work? Like, why am I a rock star at work and my personal life sucks? Like, why can I not, you know, get it together? Because I had never lost that uh, moment of, I want to live my life differently. I mean, I meant that. I really did. And there were things I did change right away, but there were bigger things I wanted to change. I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to lose that weight. I mean, I didn't want to weigh 355 pounds. I, I wanted all those things different, but felt paralyzed kind of to get there. I remember my we had a, a new CEO that had come in. Our, our CEO retired. A new one came in. And I remember she said to me one day, Amy, I want to ask you a question. What do you think we need to change here? What needs to be different? Talking about the credit union. What needs to be different? And I kind of Man, this is CEO. Is this a trick question? Like I kind of had deer in the headlight look like, I'm not sure how to answer this. And she said to me, no, you have a magic wand. Like you have a magic wand. What would you do different? And that sounds so silly, but that little twist of you have a magic wand, what would you do? Made it safe. Suddenly it was safe for me to like dream and say, oh, well, it would, we would do this and this. And so I thought about it. I was like, you know, we would have a great culture. We would have a great culture. I described it. You know, we're going to sing Kumbaya in staff meetings, you know, whatever. And so I finished and she said, okay, well, given your current situation and your current limitations, what are the very smallest steps you can do right now today to, to help get us there? Write that down. That's your action plan. And I left her office and I was thinking, okay, what just happened? Like, I'm not even in management yet. And suddenly I'm responsible for like our culture, but it was exciting. And I later looked back and realized the reason it was exciting is what she gave me was hope. Because the definition of hope by the authors of Hope Rising, the science of hope, they say hope is, hope is the idea that your future can be better and brighter than your past and that you actually play a role in making that happen. So hope is action. Hope is something you do. Hope is a verb. And I was like, okay, I can do that. It gave me hope. And so I pulled out an index card and thought about my own life and thought, okay, what are the things I want to change in my life? Like if I had a magic wand and I actually, actually took it, I, I looked at financial, relational, I looked at every aspect and wrote down and I wrote it down as if it already happened even. 
later I found this Word document. I did it in a Word document. Found the Word doc. It gave me chills because everything had come true. One thing that came true was slightly different because I had written about what my marriage would look like. And I wrote this beautiful love story of this marriage. And it happened, but it didn't happen with the person I had been married to. So I actually went through a divorce and and remarried. But I look back now and all those things I wrote down actually did come true. Well, what happened was writing it down gave me clarity of what I really wanted. And then I chose one thing. I chose the what I thought would be the easiest thing. Because wait, I mean, God, all, all of them were tough stuff. But I thought maybe I can go back to school. So I started with that one. And like the first step was just to get my transcript because, again, I had flunked out of college. So my transcript was 0.50 grade point average. So I have to try to find a college that's even going to take me. So um, that was step one. So I went back to college. I got my degree. And then I had so much confidence. I thought I'm going to get my master's. And then I thought, okay, I've got all these research skills now from going back to school. And I've got all this confidence. Like, let's tackle the weight. And I started researching different ways that people lose weight, treating it like a research project, you know, taking my emotion out of it and like, let's just tackle this thing. And I ended up having a bariatric surgery called a gastric sleeve and lost 200 pounds. But that I didn't just want to lose the weight. I wanted to be fit. I wanted to be able to ride a bicycle. I wanted to be able to you know, walk up a flight of stairs, you know? And so that led to like finding a bicycle and I was still heavy. I was still in the process of losing the weight. And I found a bicycle that would hold me and started riding a bike in my neighborhood. And I just, I kept doing this thing of magic wand and given my current situation, what are the next steps? And I do it. I do it to this day. I do it every morning almost. I might do it about a problem. If I'm facing a problem at work, okay, if I had a magic wand, how would I fix it? What would I do? And then I back into, okay, given my situation, given my circumstances, what can I do? What that does is it takes you out of being a victim because when you're a victim, you're helpless. You can't do anything. I got blown up. I got blown up or got divorced. Out of my control. I can't help it. You know, well, instead, you have to own what happened to you, even if you didn't do it or cause it or it's unfair. You actually have to take responsibility for what has happened to you. And that sucks, but you do, or you will not move forward and overcome. And so you finally have to say, okay, given my current situation, like I just went through the bombing, I just had all this stuff happen. Like, what can I do to move forward? I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism 
and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion, that one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. And so I just kept doing that over and over again. And I look back now and I went from, you know, a, a teller who couldn't bounce a cash drawer, who flunked college because she couldn't pass a math class. You even failed remedial math. Remedial, not even the legitimate one, like the fake one you take, you know, before you can take the real one. And so now I am CEO of the financial institution and I have a master's degree. And I went from 355 pounds to completing an Ironman, which is a 2.4 mile swim followed by a 112 mile bike ride finished up by a 26.2 marathon all within 17 hours and different time cuts to be declared an Ironman. I look back and I'm like amazed. If you would have told me I would have done all of that, like 25 years ago, I would have looked at you and said, uh-huh, why don't you just put on that list, like get a, get a, uh, you know, some kind of rocket and fly to Mars because it would be that, that ridiculous. But that's, that's the power of just, constantly evaluating your life and taking, you know, steps to move forward. I just heard somebody recently talking about it's always a mistake to measure yourself where you are today to your ideal because that's always going to be a disappointment and you're never there. But if you measure where you are today with where you were in the past, you can see what progress you've made and I just have to, you know, you and I could talk for hours on human endurance sports and yep. and uh, yep. and those things, ultra marathons and Ironmans and all that. But I got to ask you this, when you crossed that line in the Ironman and, you know, they always do this, the, the announcer always announces your name and you are an Ironman. What's going through your head at that point? Oh, you're going to make me cry just saying it. <laughs> I could talk about that journey, that Ironman journey. It was tough. I thought I wasn't going to make it. And I will tell you, I came in last. I was the last finisher. It was hit or miss whether I was actually going to make it in time. And so when I rounded the corner and I saw the lights and that big shoot of that finish line, and I looked up and I saw myself on that jumbotron, it was like slow motion. I remember every moment, the hands over the, giving me high fives over the railing and 
you know, it's midnight and there's still people there. They're cheering me across. And I saw my husband at the finish line and my coach was standing there and they had the medal and the voice of Iron Man says, Mike Riley, you are an Iron Man. I was so overcome with emotion and they put that around that around my neck and you know I, I mentioned I, I grew up in a, in a faith-based home and after the whole bombing and everything I really um, kind of embraced my, my faith again and one of the things I thought of is in the Bible they talk about life being like a race like run the race you know it, they describe it as an endurance race and I thought about you know whatever heaven is like if that's anything like finishing, like this is what we dream up on earth, you know, to cross this finish line and here's this medal and, you know, how you feel, like what will it feel like when we cross over to eternity after running this race on life? So I had thoughts like that also in my mind at the same time, kind of um, spiritual thoughts. But honestly, it was just like, I felt badass. I felt badass and I was so proud of myself. And that is probably one of the things I think I'm most proud of in my entire life because it didn't have anything to do with the bombing. There's been a lot of promotions I've received and I mean, I'm CEO and there's a little voice in the back of my mind that says, well, but you know, you survived, you know, if your coworkers would have lived, they might've got that promotion, you know, but this was something I did. I got up at 4am to run. I ran in the rain. I swam in crazy wind. I did this. And my body, even though I've lost weight, I'm still an unlikely athlete. I'm still on the heavy side. I'm still, you know, not quite who you think of when you think of an Ironman, but I did it. And it proved to me that I can do hard things and I can do what I put my mind to. I can do those things. People listening to this might think that when you cross a finish line in some huge event like that, that your thoughts might be, wow, I'm sure glad it's over. I don't have to run anymore or whatever. But that's not what it is. It's just, I've seen it when it happened to me and I've seen it happen to so many people as they cross the finish line. It's just overwhelming emotion that you did it. Yeah. I mean, just you even describing when you said, you know, you are an Iron Man. I mean, you saw my eyes filled up with tears because it's still emotional to this day, even just thinking back on it. I think it represents your life. I think when you're on, when you do these events, it represents your life, the hardships you have in life. And it's very symbolic when you cross that finish line that you can overcome. And it's really not just about overcoming that particular race. It's you overcoming the hard things in your own life that you deal with. Exactly. And you think, wow, I just did this. What else am I capable of? Yeah. Right. 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 I, okay. I've got to ask you this and I'm sure I, I think probably people are wondering this. You uh, you failed remedial math, and yet you went to college and got your master's in business. You weighed 355 pounds. You lost that weight. You were a couch potato. You completed an Ironman. You were a teller who, by your own admission, was a lazy worker, and now you're the CEO of that yeah. credit union. Right. And you know we, we hear stories of people changing their lives after some kind of traumatic event, but is it possible? For people who are just in a rut, they haven't had any big tragedy happen to them. How does that person get in that mindset to change things? I absolutely believe that it can happen. And I know people who have changed their lives without any traumatic event. But it takes the intention, um, intentionality, is that a word? <laughs> you know, you have to be intentional. And so I really do believe it is 
as simple as sitting down with yourself and asking yourself, if I had a magic wand, who would I become? What would my life look like? Who would I be? Ask yourself those questions. Start there over and over again, asking yourself, who is it I'm wanting to become? What am I wanting to do? What is my life? What am I really doing here? And where do I want to go? When you start asking yourself those questions and answering those things, I believe our brains are so smart. They're like, it's like an app running in the background, starting to try to figure out how to get there. And you will start figuring it out. And then when you take that and go, okay, what are the smallest steps I can take? And you start every single day taking the tiniest step. You look back, those small, consistent steps over time will transform your life. But you have to just take it that small, tiny, tiny steps because it doesn't happen overnight. And it's, it, it's, it's a process. But it starts with allowing yourself to dream. And I think particularly as we reach middle age, a lot of people have been knocked down so many times, they just don't want to get back up anymore. We've had life beat out of us. You have to really allow yourself to dream again. Life isn't over. Middle age is just the beginning. Are you kidding me? I'm living into my 90s. My dad lived in his 90s. I'm not ready to sit on a couch and like, you know, wait to die. Like, heck no. Would you say today that would you call yourself a different person? Or or maybe I should rephrase that. People who knew you before the bombing and who know you still now, what would they say about your transformation? You know, I had a friend tell me, now she knew me after the bombing, not before the bombing, but she knew me before all the transformation. Because this transformation, like I said, I didn't run out of the hospital and suddenly I was transformed. It, it was quite a while after that I could finally get traction. She says I'm the same person. So she says from where she sees, she sees me as the same person, just outwardly changed and with these accomplishments and achievements, but she says I'm the same. I don't know. I don't feel like I'm the same person before the bombing. I definitely don't. Now, here's a question though. Would those changes have happened over time? Like that's a question because I know a lot of people as we reach middle age, we look back and we realize we've grown. We're not, you know, hopefully we all have, right? We're not the same immature, silly, whatever we were when we were younger. We've grown. And so maybe that growth would have occurred whether the bombing happened or not. I don't know. You got to think most people aren't going to take the, or have the intentionality to sit down and say, okay, let me, I'm just going to, I'm going to physically write this down. What do I want to change? What do I want to be? And yet you did that. We do it every now and then, you know, we'll do it at New Year's. We'll do it. But to just do it all the time. And it doesn't take that long. Like I do it with coffee. Have my coffee, sit down. And and it may not be every single day. It might be five days a week. But I do it often. And when you do it often, it doesn't take very long. Like it's like maybe 10 minutes. I'm sitting there thinking about it, revisiting what I wrote down the last time. Am I on track? You know, that kind of thing. Even if it's something you just want to do that day. You know, if I got if I, if I got these three things done today, that's going to be a good day. Right. So then you focus on those things. Yep. And so you've written a book. Yes. You've actually already mentioned the name of the book, but your book is called Hope is a Verb. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit, what what that book's about? And I've read it. I already know. It's, it's <laughs> but Go ahead. My intention for the book was to encourage others by sharing my journey in a way that the reader would see maybe themselves in my own journey and the encouragement for their own selves in their own journey. 
it does talk about my experience through the bombing, but it's not just about that. It's about the transformation, the aftermath and the idea that hope is a verb, which is this idea that your future can be better and brighter than your past, but you play a role in making that happen. You know, and so it's this idea of you have to take responsibility for your life. And I'm sharing it from my first person experience of how I've done it. But with the idea that my wish is that it will impact the reader and inspire them a little bit for their own life. We'll have a link to your book on the in the show notes for this episode. So anybody wants to get that, they can. And it goes into, I should say, it goes into a lot more detail about what happened than what we've talked about here. And it's it's really good. If people want to contact you, how can they do that? Go to my website, amydowns.org. And I've got links to my social media pages on there. Great. And you do public speaking as well, right? I do. You speak to groups. And I know we're kind of coming out of COVID yes. now. Are you back to speaking in person I now? I am. I am. I've had, um, I've, just this past month, I've had two uh, keynotes that I've been able to deliver in person to a live physical audience, and it's been wonderful. So a lot of conferences are getting scheduled and and back in place, and it's been nice. So anyone that's hearing this that has a company or a group, they should contact you, and uh, that yes. would be an amazing thing to to experience. And I have to I have to give a plug for Oklahoma City. We have a brand new convention center. It is amazing. It is a great place to bring a conference. So I have to give that little shameless plug. Well, Amy, thanks for sharing your story. It's pretty amazing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Amy's story is definitely one of my favorites. She is just so incredible. She's also done a TEDx talk, and there's a video of that. I'll put a link to that along with everything else in the episode notes at whatwasthatlike.com slash 95. Sometimes people ask me how I come up with the ideas for this podcast. Well, in some cases, they come as suggestions from listeners. That's what happened with this one. My nephew Scott listens to this podcast, and earlier this year, he moved to Oklahoma with his wife and their little girl. They were visiting the Oklahoma City National Memorial, and he sent me a text message asking if I've ever thought about interviewing someone who survived the bombing. And that's what started the ball rolling for this episode. So thanks, Scott. And if you have an idea for an episode, that's how easy it is. Honestly, I don't think I'll ever run out of stories for this show, but I'm always looking for new ones. You can send me your idea by contacting me through the website. And I'd love to hear what you think of Amy's story. If you want to chime in with an opinion or a question, you can do that at the private Facebook group we have just for listeners of this show. You can join at whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. We're coming up on 2,000 people in that group now. And sometime in the near future, we'll be moving that group off of Facebook to a different platform. But I'll give you all the details about that when it happens. And before we get to this week's listener story, I want to let you know you can support the podcast and get all the new episodes ad-free, as well as extra bonus episodes that have actual 911 calls and the stories that go with them. And most importantly, your support tells me you like what I'm doing. That's always a huge encouragement. You can sign up to support the show at whatwasthatlike.com support. And now, this week's listener stories. That's right, I said stories, plural. 
I knew this episode with Amy was coming up, and I just love to hear stories of people overcoming adversity. So I asked the people in the Facebook group to tell about something they've done that just seemed so big and difficult, they didn't know if they'd be able to do it. And they came through, and some of them called in to tell what happened. So that means we don't have just one listener story, we have five listener stories. These people are amazing, and I'm glad that you and I get to hear what they've been able to accomplish. Stay safe. I'll see you in two weeks. My father was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 1990, and by 2004, the situation was becoming too much for my mom to handle alone. I'm one of four children, the third in line, but when, but because we lived in the same town, I guess I felt more responsible for them. And to make a long story short, we sold our home and built onto theirs, and I became a caregiver for the next 13 years. My parents were not the overly lovey-dovey type. And here I was, possibly the least favorite kid, which is a whole other story, set up to take care of them for the rest of their lives. When I knew my dad was actively dying, the thought of even asking for hospice help and then calling my siblings to tell them that, it paralyzed me. I was so afraid of the death, the emotions, all of it. But my family all came and we surrounded his deathbed and had the most beautiful send-off. Twelve years later, my mom had a stroke and was in bed for two years. And again, I didn't know how I was going to do this. I just know it had to be done. Caregiving is a really, really hard job. Changing your parents' diapers is just something you don't expect to do in life. Fortunately, my family was great. My kids would keep my mom's spirits up and mine. I remember one night listening to the on the baby monitor to my daughter singing her heart out and my mom jokingly telling her she was really good. My siblings would also come whenever I needed them, and I was graced by their gratitude, but inside I was still so scared of my mom dying. Her death was just as scary to me as my dad's. Giving her the morphine that was prescribed by hospice felt like I was aiding in her death somehow. Again, calling in the family when I knew it was the end was the worst feelings I ever had. I held it together until a car ride to the hospital behind an ambulance carrying my mom, where I think I just scream cried for about 20 minutes. We took her home from the hospital so she could die in her house in peace, surrounded by her family. I missed my parents terribly. I missed the life we had when we were all living together and making the best of their health struggles. But I'm at peace with the death we were able to give them. Hi, Scott. Love the show. In response to your prompt on Facebook, something I did that was incredibly difficult that I never thought I would do was a CrossFit competition. Growing up, I wasn't super athletically inclined, but in my 30s, I was diagnosed with high blood pressure, the weight was creeping up, and I knew that I needed to start some kind of physical activity consistently or else I would just get older and the harder it would be to start. So on a whim, I joined a gym and unbeknownst to me, they did CrossFit style workouts as well as HIIT type workouts and I absolutely loved it. It was the first time I had ever consistently gone to the gym. After about a year of going there, a group of the members decided to do a CrossFit competition and actually asked me if I would join them. And I said, yeah, okay, let's do it. My goal was to not place last. And I actually placed eight out of 11. 
And so I consider that a success. Hi, Scott. Thanks for letting me be on your show. So I tell my daughter, uh, we had a wonderful relationship. And then in 2016, I found out my daughter was an IV drug user. Heroin was her drug of choice. And our relationship went downhill from that. And I'm a tough love kind of mom. And I could not be an enabler and watch my daughter kill herself. But she was homeless for quite a while. And then in 2017, she found out she was pregnant. And she got arrested. While she was in jail, she had to go to the hospital. And she found out she had necrotizing fasciitis in her arm. So she went through several surgeries, skin grafts. All of this while she is pregnant. It was just crazy. So when she was released from the hospital, I brought her to my house. And she went on a um, maintenance program that would keep her from withdrawing so that she would not lose the baby. And she did wonderful. The baby did wonderful. But we knew that he was going to have to withdraw at birth. And he did great. It was, it was easy. We were at a wonderful hospital that took great care of him. And now he has this, this healthy, wonderful, energetic three-year-old boy. But when he was four months old, she relapsed. And I had to take him in. And it was very scary because I'm 50-ish. And when you're handed a four-month-old baby, it, it, it scares you. It's hard. There's a lot you have to do. You have to find daycare. You have to do this. You have to do that. But I wouldn't change it for a million dollars. So this year... About 75 days ago, my daughter decided she wanted to get clean. And she is absolutely doing wonderful. She's in a great program in our town. She's going to meetings. She's working that program. She's helping others. She's been working at a sober living house. And she's back living with us. And we are gradually working her back into his life. And he absolutely loves having his mama home. So there is a light at the end of that tunnel. And you can do it if you want to do it. And I am so proud of my daughter. She will never know how proud I am of her and what a good mother she is becoming. I just want other people to know that if you're struggling, if you have to take in a grandchild, do what you need to do. You will not regret it for one minute. And be there for your child when they say they're ready to get help. I would walk on water to help my baby, and I am so proud of her. Hello, my name is Devin. I've always had a dream of owning rentals and flipping houses, being involved in real estate. So in the in the beginning, my wife and I started dating at 15, uh, but ended up getting married and had a kid at 17. I moved out and finished our senior year on our own. As you can imagine, the place that we found was not ideal. Not a lot of people want to rent to 17-year-olds. So we didn't have a stove, no microwave. All we had was a hot plate and a single pot to cook our meals in. Uh, The car we had was a five-speed, so we didn't have a starter in it. So we'd have to push it down the road and pop the clutch to get to work every day. And the same way on the way home, of course. Learned pretty quickly this was not going to be a good lifestyle for us. So we worked really hard to build our credit, and by 19, we were able to buy our first home. Spent a lot of time fixing this up, working on it. We found after we bought it, the people actually had pet raccoons, so the house was a mess. And we lived there for about five years, 
During that time, we added another child and decided it was time to move on to another house. So we converted that into a rental and upgraded our life a little bit. And we repeated this process uh, to the point just before the pandemic where I was able to have three rentals. And the property that we live in now has 25 acres and two ponds and very beautiful area. But shortly after that, just as the pandemic got started, unfortunately, I found out that I was diagnosed with cancer. And although I had not taken, I had been working on the real estate stuff, we focused more on family stuff. So during this time, I focused all of my energy, all of our money. We pretty much went all chips in on the real estate thing to follow my dreams. And uh, my family was fantastic in supporting me during this time, which, by the way, truly cure, definitely going to live many more years. But anyway, during that time, I put everything I had and was able to flip a home. And as of now, we've got nine rentals and will probably be able to retire by the time I'm 40. I uh, was able to purchase the car of my dreams, which was a Tesla Model 3, and very happy. My name is Megan, and this November 1st, just over a week or so ago, marked five years off of opiates for me. I used different kinds, like pills, dabbled in heroin, but my drug of choice was fentanyl. There's been a drug epidemic around the world and a large increase in deaths from fentanyl. I started drinking around the age of 11 and progressed to cocaine around the age of 14 when I was hanging out with my older sister. Unfortunately, she is still um, suffering from her addiction. The next year was when I started using opiates first to oxys that docs, like doctors used to overprescribe them way too much. They were everywhere. But when those started, when that started happening less, I progressed to like heroin, as I said, and hydromorphine. And eventually I tried fentanyl. Actually, the first time I tried it, I was with my boyfriend and I overdosed and had to be rushed to the hospital and revived with Narcan. You know what I didn't do after overdosing? Try to get sober. It wasn't until a year, over a year later, actually, that I would finally decide to try to get off drugs. But that boyfriend wasn't ready, so we had to go our separate ways. This January, he was shot and killed by police. I've been living with a lot of guilt. I know you can't help someone who doesn't want help, but it's hard. So, on to the good, though. At the end of 2016, I made the decision to try to better myself, but physically, like, it was unbearable. I won't go into the too much information details, but after being so dehydrated from withdrawals, I started uh, medication-assisted treatment, Suboxone. So, the doctors and nurses at the clinic were absolutely amazing. Seriously, like, they saved my life. I was able to taper off of the suboxone just in time for me to get pregnant unexpectedly. <laughs> my ex left me as soon as I told him. And it was a really hard time physically and mentally because I was really sick with HG. But I pulled through and I have a sweet three-year-old son. Now I'm in school full-time for child needs care. I have a great boyfriend and we're planning our future together. In my Facebook memories, I see pictures of me, and you can see it in my eyes how high I was. 
it's a good reminder that I've come a long way, and I have a lot of things to look forward to in the future.